We took these modems apart, we looked inside of them and saw that all of the software had been overwritten. Um, you know, there's actually no software in the terminal that could do that on its own. And so the, the key thing there is that, you know, there is, it was very clear that something outside had caused that. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, podcasters. This month, two years ago, Russia mobilized 360,000 military personnel, massing most of them along Ukraine's border with Russia and Belarus and on ships in the Black Sea. Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, ordered them to invade Ukraine on February 24th, 2022. The goal was and remains maximalist. That means forcibly installing a Putin-friendly government in Kyiv, if not also annexing the entire sovereign territory of Ukraine. But this invasion didn't really start with a Russian soldier or sailor stepping onto Ukrainian soil. According to the U.S. State Department, it actually started with a cyber attack against a California-based space company. That was Viasat. It provided internet communication services to Europe. And in addition to the government of Ukraine, its customers include and still include governments, businesses of every size and in every sector, and private citizens. This episode is the first of a series in which we're examining cybersecurity and commercial space systems, the cyber threats, the policy, and what the West's adversaries have also learned. The focus is on the commercial space sector because it provides services to the militaries of the United States, its allies, and its defense partners. So let's start this journey on February 17, 2022, one week before Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, with this audio montage starting with United States Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco issuing a warning to U.S. businesses, followed by reports that started on February 23rd of cyber attacks targeting Ukraine with some local U.S. reaction, and finally a press conference with the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Here's Deputy AG Monaco. Very high tensions that we are experiencing. Companies of any size and of all sizes would be foolish not to be preparing right now as we speak um, to increase their defenses, to uh, do things like patching, to um, heighten their alert, to be monitoring in real time um, their cybersecurity. They need to be, as we say, shields up. Uh, a cyber attack, a series of cyber attacks that have just been launched in Ukraine. What do you know at this point? Aaron, a top Ukrainian cybersecurity official has confirmed to NBC News that Ukraine is once again under cyber attack. The official said a wave of so-called denial of services attacks struck around 4 p.m. Ukraine time, and among the reported victims are banks and government websites. NBC this News invasion is being fought on the other side of the world. The ripple effect it could have on the security of other countries, including the United States, is being discussed by scholars and experts from around the U.S. Yes and no. 
We, the United States, should, of course, take cybersecurity seriously. Russia is a very capable cyber actor. And it is causing untold havoc in a target-rich city like New York. Already, Governor Kathy Hochul is marshalling state cyber warriors to repel the Russians. We are on heightened alert with respect to cybersecurity and our own defenses. The governor says she's... Thank you, Mr. Secretary General. There's concern that NATO could get pulled into this conflict if Russia were to shut down electricity or other services uh, in Ukraine that could spill over into Poland or, or Romania. Can you say explicitly whether a Russian cyber attack of that nature would trigger an Article 5 collective defense? So we are sending a very clear message to, to Russia uh, that we uh, provide support to our partner Ukraine and allies provide many different types of support. NATO help Ukraine also with their cyber defenses. Uh, but then for NATO allies, we provide the absolute security guarantees uh, under the Washington Treaty, Article 5. An attack on one uh, will be regarded as an attack on all. And we are clear on this distinction because it is important to make sure that um, uh, we don't have um, an even bigger crisis in Europe where Russia uh, challenge or uh, is threatening uh, or attacking any NATO allied country. And that's the reason why we so clearly send a message that we are there to protect all allies and every inch of NATO territory. When it comes to cyber attacks situation, on cyber, well, we have stated that um, cyber attacks can trigger Article 5, but we have never uh, gone into the a position where we give a potential adversary the privilege of defining exactly when we trigger Article 5. That last bit of sound, and it was condensed for clarity, is of the NATO section on February 25th, 2022. That was one day after reports that tens of thousands of internet modems connected to the KASAT satellite communications network were no longer working. The year before, Viasat had acquired the KASAT network from the French satellite operator Utelsat. And under the agreement, a subsidiary of Utelsat, it's called Skylogic, was still operating the KASAT network at the time of the attack. To understand what happened that day and how it affects the commercial space industry today, two years later, we've got Aaron Miller, Executive Director of the Space Information Sharing and Analysis Center, and Frank Bacchus, CEO of Capella Space. But first, we're going to hear from Viasat's Chief Cybersecurity and Data Officer for Government Systems, Nick Saunders, because he was at the sharp end of the stick on February 24, 2022. Here's our conversation. Hello, Nick. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Downlink Podcast. Hi, Laura. It's nice to see you. You know, you and the Visat team have been so generous in giving our somewhat diverse space audience a look into one of the most public, if not most important events involving space systems back on February 24th of 2022, the day, uh, your hellacious weekend, what you learned, and where Viasat is today. But let's first give the audience a chance to know a little bit about you. So please take a moment and briefly introduce yourself. Hi, thanks, Laura. Uh, yeah, so my name is Nick Saunders. I am our Chief Cybersecurity and Data Officer for Viasat's Global Space Networks Group. 
Uh, I'm focused on a practical basis with the security of our services networks and many of the global networks that we operate. Uh, from a background perspective, I have a degree in computer engineering. I went to Virginia Tech. Uh, on a personal level, I'm a runner. I, I enjoy running. That'll come up later, I think, a little bit in terms of my my experience with this. But I'm a nerd, and then I also enjoy to get outside and run and, and do a couple of other things on the side. Now, I think many in the audience who have had the opportunity to travel on American Airlines or United Airlines, they've probably seen that the onboard internet service is made possible by Viasat. So they know that Viasat is involved in satellites and airborne retail internet connectivity. But Viasat is so much more than that. Could you give us an overview of the company? You know, like how many satellites are in your constellation? Where are your customers located? And who are your government customers? Yeah. So a uh, quick overview of ISAT's a global communications company. We connect businesses, jets, militaries, residents. Um, we have a satellite fleet of about 18 satellites now. And so in this context, offer a, uh, a network service in the European EMEA region. So we cover continental Europe as well as a little bit of Northern Africa with a, a network called KASAT. Uh, and so that, that KASAT network is, is the one that we'll be talking through a little bit today. As a quick little bit of background on that, one of the things that I think is not apparent when you think about the, the connectivity of multiple different satellites is is there's a little bit of you know business arrangement complexity as you start to get into things. And so we, we offer a service called KASAT. It's a satellite over Europe, um, but that's ultimately a, a satellite which a third party launched in 2010. And we were initially a technology provider to a third party who was uh, offering connectivity and services over Europe. In 2016, Viasat ended up ultimately acquiring partial ownership of that satellite network. And uh, in April of 2021, Biosat purchased the remaining stake of the KASAT service network. So that became one of those 18 different satellites that we were mentioning. But ultimately, at the time, as you mentioned, of February 24th, 2022, we were still under that transition services agreement where we were relying on a third party operator to um, you know, ultimately be operating that. And so we were reliant. Um, what we What we needed to do on a personal level was kind of ask for access when working with uh, that network. So that's a little bit of background on Viasat as well as the KASAT network in Europe. Now, I want to take you back to the morning of February 24th, 2022. When did you first know something was wrong? So I, I was awake. I was actually out. I'd driven out to go for a run. And I get back to my, my car where I'd left my phone. I, I pull up my phone and I've got a couple of missed calls from my boss, which is completely abnormal. I never receive off-hours calls from my boss generally, unless something's absolutely new. So I, I called him back, and he said, "Hop, you know, hop on this meeting." And so, ultimately, I, I hopped onto a meeting from my car. I'm still sitting in my car, uh, and I hopped on a meeting, not not quite knowing what's what, but he had mentioned, "Hey, there's a problem on our network in Europe." And what did they say? I mean, when you heard the news, I mean, wh what even goes to your mind? you know, when you hear the news that you heard? So I joined the call and there was many different people. Some names I knew, some a couple of new faces that were on the call. And everyone on the call was kind of staring at just like a couple of different pieces of information. And the key piece of information that we were all looking at 
was all we know right now is that we lost a lot of users um, in terms of connected users that were on that network. And as I mentioned it, you know, that network was operated by a different company. And so the immediate thing that you want to do is just go off and get more information. Uh, so, but more from a practical experience standpoint, what that meant for us was we were all kind of looking at the same artifacts and getting into a, it could be this. Did you think about this? Have we, you know, what, like what could cause that high amount of drop-offs in users? And so ultimately what that meant was we needed to start thinking about a game plan and figuring out what information we would want to request from our third-party operator in that region. So when everyone met and had an opportunity to catch their breath, what was the scope of what you had to wrap your arms around? This was eventually found to be at least a two-pronged attack involving thousands of customers, homes, the energy sector in Germany, foreign governments. Yeah, I mean, what was actually being attacked? Because it, it wasn't the on-orbit satellites, right? And, and what was the footprint? As in, how far did the effect go? Yeah, so there's a lot of questions in there. And I'll there kind are. Of, Sorry. I'll start <laughs> You're totally fine. Um, so one of, you know, just to start to wrap our arms around it, you know, again, I mentioned all we had to begin with was very basic sets of information, like the total number of online users. And then, you know, that was the morning I, you know, eventually I went home, you know, got, you know, took a shower after my run, went into the office and, uh, you know, immediately kind of jumped into the fold and started looking at, okay, what, what are the different pieces of information that we need to go off and collect? And so we started to get a little bit more trickles of information that were being fed to us. We knew that there was a high number of dropped off users, but we also started to get some files, some information that was being pulled out of that network as well. I remember one key piece of evidence, which showed us something that related to um, the, basically the messages that were going on on that network, you know, flowing across that network. And what we saw was some kind of abnormal, high volumes of messages that were flowing that it didn't make sense. And further, it didn't correspond to exactly the perfect answer to why that high number of users had dropped off of the network. And so it just seemed disjointed or disconnected, didn't it? Yeah, it was, a, it was a little bit independent. And so ultimately what we found was it was a two-pronged attack. And so I think it's important, you know, with clarity and hindsight to understand that one of the things that we were looking at was we were looking at two different pieces of two different things. <laughs> we We didn't, what you initially think is there's one cause, right? And so what it actually was, was we were feeling, you know, the elephant from multiple sides, but there were actually two elephants that we were looking to wrap our arms around. And so a number of different calls, people were jumping in to help, but we also developed starting, we started to make an organized plan of, you know, what is our plan of attack? One of the things that was going to start to happen for us was we coordinated modems, those modems that, you know, went offline for users. These, these modems ultimately, you know, were, were stated to be having problems. They, they didn't behave normally. So we got a couple of them shipped in to our headquarters in California. And so when I, they were getting- I heard one of them was like stuck in customs, right? Yeah, we, uh, there's a, I think somebody actually got turned away. They're supposed to come in. Yeah, you know, the attack happened on a Thursday and you know they're supposed to arrive on Friday. And then on Saturday uh, was when they actually came because of that customs issue. And so they arrived on Saturday and- you know, we laid them out on a table and we had developed in the days leading up to Saturday, a plan for what is the first thing you want to do when 
you plug that thing in or you know what do you connect it to do you take it apart what what is the exact plan so we coordinated a plan we came up with you know the the beginning middle and end for what we wanted to do and test and so they were laid out on a conference table but as i mentioned it was saturday and so we had our plan but we also needed we ended up needing you know some extra things we needed extra equipment we needed some expertise and so you know part of that on a practical level was you know we had kind of our key incident responders that were all like, we've got a phone tree, we've got an incident response plan and all of that. But separately, there's, you know, you end up in the contextual situation with, I, I also need to go call around and ask for some help from some colleagues as well to jump in and do what do what was possible to, to ultimately investigate those terminals when they came in on Saturday. But also the team that you assembled, right? I mean, you you have a real challenge here because you have a mix of legacy with new systems, partner systems, getting access to the partner systems, understanding how the modems actually worked with so many different technologies working together. I mean, what kind of team did you have to assemble? We ended up making a very multidisciplinary team. We started with those modems that were on on the table, right? And then we established from, you know, sitting around this table into a coordinated set of individuals that are leading multiple different tracks of investigation. And so I think we had a track relating to, you know, the forensics response, um, the reverse engineering. We had other tracks that were relating to, like, just go take a look at the equipment and have the experts kind of over there. And then there was another team focused on the other facet of the attack, which was, uh, essentially what I mentioned is that other elephant we were feeling around, which was those network-based attacks, which were ultimately you know, attacks that were coming from terminals that were targeting the network to try and disrupt its ability to deliver service. So what we did was we established kind of four different you know, efforts with multiple people kind of contributing to each individual efforts with an incident response leadership at the top, as well as maybe then support up to our executive leadership and then communications teams. So... Leaving the second form of attacks, right, which is just a huge deluge of requests, let's, you know, put that one to the side. But with the modems, what actually happened or the modems or the routers or was it both? I mean, what what happened to them? Yeah, great question. So, yeah, I kind of I've talked a little bit through our experience and the emergence of an understanding, but kind of looking back with full clarity, what we through those different teams we developed a picture of what happened. And so ultimately by you know Sunday, we had kind of understood, okay, we took these modems apart. We looked inside of them and saw that all of the software had been overwritten. Um, you know, there was actually no software in the terminal that could do that on its own. And so the, the key thing there is that, you know, there is, it was very clear that something outside had caused that. And so then, you know, that helped us understand this is definitely not something that, you know, could have happened by accident. I remember going around the room in our lab when we first saw the content and I looked at everyone and said, you're confident, you're a hundred percent sure, you're a hundred percent sure, you're a hundred percent sure, because this matters. And, and when we determined that it was an outside you know, event that had caused that, that's when we then fortified and, and really started to understand, okay, what occurred on the network side. And so we, we started to then get answers on the network side, which was, 
know, someone, you know, with full clarity looking back and looking at all of the network logs, we brought in a third party forensics partner who also helped us. They did an excellent job. They were a third party independent firm uh, who helped us kind of retrace the steps on entry. Um, and, and ultimately what had happened was someone broke through the, the VPN appliance, which they, is the, basically the way to access into that network. So, you know, like I, I log in to work from home. I think you, you may do this every now and then where, uh, you, you've logged in and, and you, you know, you connect put in your password and you put in your password. And so, you know, that system that, you know, that VPN appliance where you basically go into the network, someone had gained, you know, illegitimate access to, you know, that VPN appliance to, to enter into the network. And so from there, they then used a series of multiple different credentials. They went through, you know, from one to the other, to the other, to the other, and laterally moved, as we call it, uh, from one system to another, and ultimately arrived on, you know, a key server, a system that was able to then reach out from that, you know, that system, which was located in Italy. They were then able to go over the satellite to then go down into the modems and distribute a piece of malware to the modems. And then they ran that piece of malware on the modems and, and that ultimately wiped the content of the software. And then they issued, they said, Hey, go off and restart. And so when the, when everything restarted, the terminals would no longer work. And when they restarted and didn't work, was that a permanent state or could that be reversed? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think there's been a lot of confusion on that in the past. Um, so There is. That's exactly why I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Because I'm so, confused. So ultimately, you know, we could take those terminals, each one of them, and take them into a lab area or a refurbished or, or you know, manufacturing facility or something. And we could go through the course of action of reinstalling the software on them and then sending them out back to the customer as good as new. The problem with that is that would take longer than just shipping them a new piece of equipment. And so what we ultimately decided to do was it's way easier just, you know, from a customer experience point of view and to make sure that the end user gets service as quickly as possible. We just ended up shipping, you know, new terminals. We actually, it was, I think it was a pretty impressive amount of logistical effort that went into that as well. So like how many terminals are we talking about? Where are we talking about? Yeah. So, I mean, this is all over users basically throughout all of Europe. And so there is, you know, we saw initially about, you know, 40 to 50,000 somewhere in there terminals drop off of the network, depending on time of day is kind of when there's different normal uh, amounts of users. And so we saw about that many. And then, you know, by the end of March, we had um, already shipped to our distributors uh, 30,000 terminal replacements to uh, ultimately, you know, replace those terminals so people could be brought back online. Over that weekend, I mean, you, you also had a team that was also focused on maintaining customer connectivity as well, right? Because not everybody was knocked off. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, as, as I mentioned, there were still tens of thousands that were connected uh, to the network as well. And so the focus was, you know, while we're also, while we're working to understand and respond to, to the issues that have happened to those users. We also had a network to run. We still had to keep everything online. We still have tens of thousands of users that we you know, want to maintain service for. And so 
Um, as I mentioned, there was a second facet of this. Yeah. What was the second facet, actually? I mean, that's like the volume of requests, right? Yeah. And so basically what happens when a, a modem's connected to a service provider is they send messages to the service provider back and forth, you know, just to like keep them online, make the network work. And so it was messages that were kind of in that nature of message that were being sent back and forth. But in this case, there is abuse of those messages that were happening. And so those those messages are for legitimate purposes. So we couldn't just turn off the ability to support those different messages in our network. What we had to do was understand what was happening that was normal and what was happening that was not normal to, to develop an understanding of what was illegitimate. So ultimately what we did was we had to we had to respond to only the illegitimate as we also then worked, you know, to keep the legitimate, we also had to not break our system as we were responding to it. And so that was a really difficult part of, of the set of responses that we had to endure to, again, keep users online. What lessons did you learn that the space community should understand? So I think there's, there's a number of different lessons and I'm still and I think a number of us that have, you know, that went through this together, you know, I, I still talk with our CISO, Mark, frequently about a lot of the, the new lessons that I think we can be learning still uh, today to this day as we think through this. But, you know, a couple that stick out to me is, you know, number one, cyber events do have victims. You know, we're supporting real users. You know, cyber is not a victimless crime. And so, you know, our focus the, that we chose to approach this with was with a focus toward the importance of connectivity and restoring users and making sure that, you know, we were heads down and focused kind of in the, the initial case. But I think in the more broad sense, we have to remember that cyber attacks are not a victimless crime. There's important usage on the other side. Um, you know, a couple other lessons, though, that that come to light a little bit more in like a narrowed sense or, you know, Organizations need to practice incident response. I think that's something that our CISO has has heavily, you know, helped us to focus on, but then encouraged for the community to be thinking about. It is not an easy task to understand everybody that needs to be involved. And, you know, I it's it's an overused quote, but I still really like it. You know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth by Mike Tyson. So, you know, I, I like that, right? Because that's exactly what it felt like is you, you do have a plan, but then you also need to, you know, have some set of context that's applied and and you know ultimately work to to respond within the situation. So I'd say practice is important there. Um, information sharing, one of the things that sticks out from a colleague with uh, NSA was. Uh, that you cannot build trust in a crisis. That was through Christina Walters, who kind of issued that statement. You cannot, you have to build that, you know, in a preparatory mode. You cannot do that, you know, under the gun while you're, you know, in an emergency. Um, A couple other ones that maybe stick out to me is that, you know, there's, there's, I think, you know, there's a lot of lessons. Like a a lot of people use the words zero trust. Yeah, there too seems kind of, yeah, mis- misunderstood. Yeah, it is really amorphous. It's opaque, actually. Yeah, but I think it, it is. It's meant to be a philosophy. But I think if you if you really break that down and, and look at it through this lens on a very concrete basis, we had edge network equipment, like something that was out, you know, out in the field, 
We had lots of terminals that were out there. And those terminals ultimately turned. They were they're perfectly authentic. They're valid. You know, they they were real users at, at some point that we had sold service to. They were paying for service. They had an identity, all of that, right? And they they'd switched. You cannot trust that they're gonna act in a legitimate way. So I think if you look through the lens of kind of that one specific concrete lesson, you can extrapolate on that a whole lot more. You can start to think about like more generally, what does that mean for anything? And so I think you you have you start you have to start prioritizing what are the most likely things that someone might you know ultimately violate and start working from the top priority to your middle priorities to the bottom and start, you know, this kind of blends into maybe my last lesson learned that I kind of go through is that there's, there's a lot of thought and control systems and and requirements and good security standards that are out there, but that's no replacement for seasoned judgment and thinking about, you know, something and how a system might be abused. So you also need to leave space for what we would call in the domain threat modeling, developing an understanding of what, what, you know, what abuse might actually look like and using judgment and being thoughtful about the way a system might break. And so I think what we need to do is there are standards, there are things that are out there that need to be, you know, proliferated, but then also you also can't replace the judgment and thinking of how a system might incur a failure of some form. And so, yeah, I could go on, but I think we're, I guess my point is we're still thinking through lessons, I think both internally, but as a community as well, as we start to try and draw lessons that can be applied to make the whole community better. So, you know, I, I, I offer just a couple of the lenses and, you know, thank you for, for asking that question. Nick, thank you very much for making the time to come on the podcast. No problem. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure and I really appreciate the forum. I think this is an extremely important area and it's just, you know, a humbling piece to play a, a little bit of a voice in a big sea of really important missions that we're all on. So I very much appreciate the forum and, and it's great to get to speak with you. Now, before we move on to the next segment, it's really important to know that it was U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in a May 10th, 2022 press release who attributed this attack against space systems to Russia. But that one attack is really just a small part of the whole picture. Aaron Miller and Frank Bacchus say space systems are now under attack, targeted by cyber criminals and nation states every day. Here's our conversation. Hi, Aaron. Frank, thank you both so much for making the time to come on the Downlink Podcast. Hey, Laura. Hey, Laura. Glad to be here. I've always wanted to participate. And before we begin, let's do a quick round of introductions. Aaron, why don't you go first? Sure. Hey, Laura. I'm Aaron Miller. I'm the Executive Director of the Space ISAC. So glad to be here with you today. And, you know, my background has a lot to do with public-private partnership and solving problems for industry and government to come together. I'm extraordinarily passionate about that. And I've been doing it for a long time and spent the most recent five years doing it at the Space ISAC. And Aaron, 
tell us a little bit more about the Space ISAC? Because the Space ISAC is the Space Information Sharing and Analysis Center, right? So, like, when was it established? How does it operate? How large is your membership of space companies, you know, and who in the government do you link up with? Like, what's the overview? Sure. Well, we have almost 100 members, so I have to start with that because it's a big deal. (laughs) We're so excited. We are a public-private partnership, and we work together to bring the global space industry to share threat and vulnerability information and timely and actionable information. We do this through our operational watch center, and we started about five years ago, like I mentioned, uh, but the history is, uh, it's, it's important. It's, it was a significant milestone for our uh, world, I would say. I'm a little biased, (laughs) but in 2019, then the White House came forward and said, we must have uh, something that's going to change the way we share information, critical threat information between the public and private sector, because we have such a burgeoning commercial space industry. I'm sure you've had people say to you many times, we're going to hit a trillion dollars of global space economy by uh, 2029, 2030 timeframe. I think that's still on track. And Regardless, we have way more commercial space than we've ever had before. And historically, with everything being uh, funded by the government, it was exquisite capabilities developed for the government. These are these are all going to be classified threats. But now we have a lot of commercial information. So the really the premise of Space ISAC is that we can do commercial unclassified threat information sharing through our watch center. And we're doing that now that we've been doing this for about four Four and a half, five years, uh, we're well on our way to changing the world, in my opinion. And Frank, you're no stranger to the space ISAC or space and cybersecurity. And until October of last year, you were the senior vice president at Kratos Defense and Security Solutions. And now you're the CEO at Capella Space. Tell us a bit about your background and involvement with space and cybersecurity. Yes, well, that I mean, that goes back actually several decades. Um, I've been in the space industry for quite a while. Matter of fact, I spoke on the threat of cybersecurity threats at the Space Symposium in 1998 to give you an idea of the timing. Now, at that time, the space industry in general was, as Aaron had mentioned, very much government exquisite systems, and there was le- very little focus on the cyber threat against our space systems. But today, as we've moved into commercial space, Like Capella Space, we are a commercial company providing capability, synthetic aperture radar across the globe, and we have to battle ourselves, in many cases, on our own as a company against nation-state threats against our infrastructure and against our on-orbit satellites. And just to bring everybody along who may not be, you know, through and through space nerds, what is the product that Capella Space actually produces for your customer, the end user? Yes, synthetic aperture radar is, again, it, it was not a commercial capability that was commercially available up until just a few years ago. So it's a new capability from a commercial perspective. It has been around quite a while for, you know, national interests and exquisite systems. What it does is it provides the ability to take a picture of what's going on on the planet through clouds at night, basically times when a traditional electro-optical or camera-based imagery is not available. So that's pretty valuable information to uh, both commercial entities that operate on the surface of the earth and also great value to governments 
Right. Correct. Right. So you see, you know, there's military and intelligence applications. As an example, if you want to know what's going on on a launch pad somewhere on the surface of the Earth and the possibility of a rocket being launched from that location, being able to monitor that in a persistent way at night and through any type of weather is an important thing to be able to do. But it's also very relevant to the global population. If, imagine a hurricane hitting a particular area in Florida. Capella has been tasked and, and has completed a complete survey of the entire coastline of Florida um, so that we know what the before a hurricane looks like. And then we also have the ability to look and see what's happening during the hurricane right through the storm. And then, of course, be able to do information analysis of post-hurricane impact. So when you're doing disaster recovery, and let's say you're a FEMA-type organization, that type of information is critical to your planning and how you respond. Now, I know, Frank, that you and a pretty stellar group of space operators and cyber experts got together and started organizing the foundations of the Space ISAC and its watch center a number of years ago, well before the attack on Viasat, and that you'd already brought on Aaron as your director— Could you or Aaron give us a threat assessment of what you were seeing in the run-up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, before February 24th, 2022? We, We were absolutely seeing an increase in cyber threats. Essentially, I'm going to say poking um, the cyber community from a reversible effect standpoint. And, and we believe that, that a lot of that was to test whether or not those cyber threats would be effective. And then, of course, after the conflict started, we saw a much more aggressive approach to effects. And we saw with Viasat and, you know, effects that were, I'm going to say, more, you know, non-reversible. In other words, they were actually affecting the infrastructure. And, and Aaron can certainly give us a lot of specifics about how that went. And to go back a little bit to 2020, 2021 timeframe, you know, we stood up the Space ISAC right before that. And the reason why we stood it up is because it was known that these attacks were possible and technologically they're highly plausible. And so that's why the conversations were already happening and commercial was already seeing attacks against their critical infrastructure. So everything we've said since day one is this is all already happening. We weren't saying, oh, all of a sudden in 2022, this is now happening just because that's when Viaset was attacked. Uh, We stood up the watch center because it was already happening. And we uh, were doing the initial planning for the watch center leading up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the attack on Viaset that coincided with that. So um, we were in the process of collaborating with Microsoft to get access to their Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center Uh, feeds where they have trillions of sensors around the world that they are monitoring and reporting now to the watch center. We were in the process also of working with Kratos uh, to get access to their visualizations of their data that comes from their Kratos global sensor network. And their antennas are all over the world. So they actually have access to quite a bit of information um, coming off of the transponders on satellites. So our information that we have about interference We can work with Kratos to determine whether or not it's purposeful. And there's also information that we have access to related to maneuvers of satellites out of the normal pattern of life, which is not directly related necessarily to what's going on, what was going on with Viasat in 2022. But 
the information that we have tells us that there's been ongoing attacks since we started really recording them and the days that the Watch Center opened in 2023, that in our preparatory days before that in 22, then we know that this has been ongoing and um, there's not really a stop to it. I mean, there's not been consistent breaks where there's no attacks against space systems, critical infrastructure or other critical infrastructures for that matter. It is a persistent ongoing activity. And and one of the things that's really important, Lori, in this is the thing that the space ISAC does specifically is when there are trillions of sensors around the world monitoring for cyber activity, they're looking at that cyber activity in a generic sense. The space ISAC focuses what we're looking for specifically against the space critical infrastructure. Um, what that allows us to do is filter out all the other things that are going on from a threat perspective let's say cyber attacks against your personal home and those kinds of things. And we're trying to narrow the focus down to the space industry specifically. And also those threats come into the space industry through in a unique way. With satellites, our networks are distributed. Um, They go over um, RF signals, radio frequency signals. And so the way those threats manifest in the space infrastructure can be different than the way that they manifest in a traditional IT sense. Um, So we try to focus that mission so that we can mitigate those threats specifically against the space systems. And Aaron, on February 24th, what happened that day and over the weekend? And if I'm not mistaken, and and perhaps I am, I mean, the space ISAC was at at, at a certain level of operational capacity at the time, right? I mean, if something went wrong and I was a space operator, I got to tell you, you would be my first call. That's uh, very kind of you that you would have called us at that time. We were not IOC yet. So my first thoughts were we can share information with the community if people knew that we had an operational watch center. So to be in all honesty with you, to be super candid, I was actually filled with regret that, and it was a really a sad moment for me because we weren't there yet. We were essentially one year off, but we were working towards success. You know, we're working towards a successful model where we would have an operational capability where some there'd be analysts who are sitting there in the watch center. There's now 20 people assigned to the watch center today. And if we would have been there, that's why I had this regret because I thought if we would have been there by then, then we could have really helped the community at that time in their time of need. But I also knew and was, and I'm still remain incredibly optimistic that Uh, whenever this happens again, because it continues, there are more and more DACs all the time. We treat them differently now. We share the information because we have an operational watch center and we have these analysts that this is their job and there is someone to call who will answer the phone. And our portal issues alerts via phone. I mean, if there's a crisis, you get a phone call from our member portal now. And that's completely different than a couple of years ago when this had happened. And the community did start calling us. Um, but it took maybe a week and a half. It wasn't that day. So a week and a half or so later, I got one of the first phone calls from an owner operator and they said, we don't know what's going on. Someone needs to start telling us what's going on. <laughs> and that was also striking for me because that was reassuring that what I was doing, building the watch center for the Space ISAC was needed and an essential part of our future. And Frank, I wanted to ask you from your perspective, I mean, you you are in the C-suite. 
of a space company now, and you were, you know, a, a senior vice president at Kratos. At that time, how did the commercial space community react to February 24, 2022? How did it affect their business operations? And I bet there was a lot more interest in joining the Space ISAC. Oh, absolutely. The interest in joining the Space ISAC and the criticality of what it represented absolutely came to light that day. But the other piece that happened, which I'm going to say supported that as well, is the first respondents to support the Ukraine on that day were coming from commercial space companies, companies like Capella Space, providing information directly to show what was going on on the ground because of the rest of the world didn't know. And because we're a commercial company, we were able to share that information publicly. And so getting the information out through media, getting the information out directly to the Ukraine, getting information directly to the U.S. government, all those things happened literally that day. But because we were already there, our infrastructure was already in place, we were watching the buildup to this event. So we were not surprised the day it happened. We knew something was coming. Um, and we were prepared and as a company had made a decision to go operational with our commercial capability that day. We were under evaluation for our capability by the U.S. government at that time. During that event, Capella went from evaluation of commercial synthetic aperture radar to operationally delivering that capability to the world. So it was a big moment in time for us as a commercial industry. That was true for Capella. It was Many capabilities also um, were used for other, from other companies as well, like Kratos, Black Sky, Planet. We had the ability to bring it to bear on the problem immediately, the day of. And I will say one of the first calls that I did make was to Aaron at the Space ISAC. Now, being the president of the Space ISAC, that was one of the primary purposes of the call is this is a big event and the Space ISAC is going to matter in the way that commercial industry responds to what's happening. With all of these companies stepping up, filling in intelligence and also communications gaps, right, like SpaceX, that all kind of lived rent-free and still continues to live rent-free in the mines inside the Kremlin, right? And in October of 2022, that's when Konstantin Vorontsov, he's the Russian diplomat assigned to work on non-proliferation and arms control issues at the United Nations. He said about a year and a half ago that Moscow considers Western satellites that provide services to Ukrainians and their war effort legitimate targets for, and I'm quoting here, for retaliatory strike. I remember that got everyone's knickers in a serious twist. And now that we're 15 you know, months on, I wonder if that sense of urgency within the commercial space community to secure space systems from cyber attacks has receded because, you know, we humans have the attention span of Lint, right? And we can get real comfortable when it's quiet. So what's the current state of affairs? Are attacks increasing? Are space companies becoming more active in trying to secure their systems from cyber attacks both ways? Yeah. So the answer to that is absolutely yes. It, the attacks are continuing. Matter of fact, the attacks are daily and the attacks have become much more aggressive and specific. So we may have seen in the past, I'm going to say intellectual property attacks trying to capture or steal our intellectual property as a company. Now the attacks are directly against our operational capability. 
So we're seeing attacks against our ground infrastructure, but we're also seeing, and this is a new component to that, is attacks against the payloads of our satellites. So in other words, directed interference against a synthetic aperture radar payload. That's not just occurring to Capella Space. It's also occurring to other commercial SAR companies like ISI and Umbra are also seeing direct intentional attack against the payload, their primary mission component of their satellite. These are reversible effects, but they still take you offline for what you're trying to do. So those attacks are very real. They occur on a regular basis. And we are very aggressively as an industry, you know, mitigating those attacks, figuring out ways to continue to achieve our mission um, through a very contested environment now. So for us, it's every day. It's 24 hours a day. We haven't lost focus on it at all. So it hasn't gone quiet. It's actually gone the other direction. They've essentially given themselves permission to openly attack us. And when you say they, I mean, the attackers, they are nation states, something that's also different. I mean, we're talking about nation states focusing their ire on commercial American and allied companies. That's right. We're talking about nation state assets being used specifically against commercial infrastructure. So we're not talking about small hacker groups or individuals, which, by the way, are still a challenge and a problem for a lot of our companies. But we're talking in this case, nation state infrastructure being used to affect the commercial space community's ability to deliver their capability. Frank, Aaron, thank you both so much for giving us your time. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate the time to make you aware of what's going on every day in the lives of the commercial industry. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. That's it for this week. For your daily dose of award-winning defense coverage, listen to the Defense and Aerospace Report with Vago Maradian. And for the Maritime Domain, listen to Cavish Ships with Chris Cavis and Chris Cervello. And get your Air Domain news and analysis from the Air Power Podcast with J.J. Gertler and Vago Maradian. I'm Laura Winter. Thank you for listening. Thank you.